The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. read a very short passage tonight, and it's plucked uh, pretty much out of context, but I'll explain that context after I read it. It's in Matthew chapter 19, verses 27 through 29, and I'm considering the idea of those who volunteer to lead and teach and nurture young people, children. What's the reward? What's in it for you? Well, here's somebody that asked that exact same question. Peter, the apostle. And again, I'm jumping into the middle of a text, but I'll explain where how it fits. Peter said in reply, Lord, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, his disciples, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne... You who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers, sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. In thinking about what I would say tonight, I was thinking about Sunday school teachers that I had, vacation Bible school teachers. I will always, all my life, remember Mrs. Schwartz. There's one person in this room who knew Mrs. Schwartz besides myself. With her beautiful red hair and her china blue eyes, she was a mother of a friend of mine. And she was the one who made it clear to me when I was a third grader in vacation Bible school that I had to respond to and personally put my trust in Christ. And I went home that day and went in my backyard, and I thought, when you pray, you're supposed to kneel, so I knelt. It was actually under a pear tree. and That tree never had any pears on it, but it was a pear tree, kind of a sickly pear tree. And I, in my own eight-year-old words, gave my life to Christ. That's very meaningful to me. And a friend's mother made that clear, not an evangelist, not a theologian, not a great book, a mother who was teaching in vacation Bible school. I remember some of my other teachers, a few particularly stand out, and I will uh, say because I'm going to embarrass her, Shirley Tucker is here tonight in the back corner. She's hiding way back there. She and I grew up in the same church. And Shirley's dad, Dexter Tucker, was one of my Sunday school teachers. I had him for two different years, at least, I believe. I'm, I'm wanting to say possibly even three. But I remember Dexter Tucker very well. He's still living today here in the Willow Valley community. And I remember Mr. Arthur Banzoff, another wonderful godly man. 
And I might have thought, and I was, I was turning it over in my mind as I thought about some of my better teachers. I thought, well, what did they get out of this, teaching a bunch of unruly boys? We had a large Sunday school, and the classes were separated, boys and girls. And, you know, we boys were typical boys. It's kind of like these little urchins that are in the primary choir here. Uh, Dr. Light, you know, sits heavily on them and tries to make them behave. Why did people like Mr. Banzoff and Mr. Tucker want to teach unruly older elementary and junior high age boys? What do they get out of it? And when I was thinking about it this week, surely it, it came to me. The reason for those two men, at least, was they only had daughters. In fact, Mr. Tucker had four daughters. And I thought, the joy of being with boys must have just overwhelmed them, that they wanted to come every Sunday and be with us boys, shooting spitballs and doing everything that we were doing in Sunday school class. Well, there's certainly a more serious way to look at it than that. And we've read here this text in Matthew 19. Let me set the scene of it because I neglected to read the earlier part. You'd have to go back to verse 16 to get the whole thing, and I'm not going to read it all, but it's the incident of the rich young ruler, this man who came to Jesus and said, good teacher, what do I need to do? Keyword. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? He was checking off his list. And he was made to understand from hearing the teaching of Jesus that he probably was still lacking something. His conscience was working on him. And so, teacher, what have I not checked off my list? I'm a pretty good guy. You know, I generously support the temple. I have a lot of money, and I I live by the law of God. And Jesus said, well, you know what to do. Keep the commandments. Which one? Jesus named a number of commandments. He said, oh, I've done all those. What do I still lack? Well, Jesus wanted to show him the ultimate thing, that if he was a commandment keeper and he wanted heaven by keeping commandments, here's what he would have to do. If you want to be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Well, the man went away sorrowful because he had so many riches, he thought this was preposterous. Well, Peter heard this, and that's what he was responding to in the text I read. And he thought to himself, aha, Here was this wealthy guy who had a lot more than I have. I have very little. I used to have a fishing business, and I'm not sure how that's going anymore. I left it with my nephew or something, and uh, not sure how uh, well the profits are still coming in for that. I gave it up. So, Lord, look, here we are, your disciples. We've done this. We gave away everything to follow you. So, surely we're going to get... What then will we have, he put it. He didn't quite put it in the greedy way he could have. Aren't we going to get a really great reward, is what he was asking. We've done this. What's our reward? What will we get? Well, there's also an ugly background to context here, because we know that the disciples were talking among themselves near the time of Jesus about which of us is going to be the greatest Who's going to be the secretary of the treasury and the secretary of state and and the attorney general in the kingdom of heaven? They openly discussed it. They were discussing it in the upper room. And you remember the mother of James and John who had come and boldly said, Lord, make my two sons 
the, the great ones on your right hand and your left. You know, I think she was kind of trying to get Peter to sort of butt out. You know, Peter's too talkative. Let my sons be your lieutenants on the right and the left. Jesus never encouraged that, but they were still in their pride and misunderstanding, jousting for position. Well, Jesus answered the question. And he's, he implied very clearly there, there really are rewards available in the kingdom of heaven beyond simply having eternal life. Now, this is a subject that, that becomes difficult, and some people think, well, goodness, you know, all Christians are just treated the same. We all receive eternal life. There's no different. Well, there is difference. And it's implied that even among Christians, there are different capacities and different rewards, and I'm not going into that very much tonight. But here Jesus says, too, rather, they're kind of enigmatic things, or kids, that's, that's something that means creating questions in your mind. He doesn't really explain, but he implies that there clearly are rewards. And, and he spells out, first of all, that when the Son of Man comes in his throne, the second coming, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is a great verse for commentators to sort of fight over. The end times uh, scenarios that people have come in here and people say, oh, when is this judgment that they are going to do that? And you know what? I sit with those who would say, and don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to say that the, everything that Jesus said is non-literal, but I don't think this is necessarily, it has to be taken as a literal understanding. I believe it's a metaphor. It's a figure of speech. And Jesus was saying, when the greatest event comes, the greatest moment, the greatest hour of history, when the Son of God returns to judge the world, and his judgment is happening, and he's deciding who is saved and who is lost and who's to be rewarded. Listen, you, my followers, are going to be over the tribes of Israel. As if to say, you will have the greatest possible positions that could ever be extended. And we want to say, whatever that means. I don't think we have to try to figure out where in the scheme of final things that throne judgment comes, if it even is a literal judgment. But the point that Jesus is saying is, my disciples are as highly exalted as any people could possibly ever be in the final ordering of things when I come in my great glory. Wow, that's pretty amazing. And then he even elaborates, if you're worried about maybe that you've lost something because Peter said, well, we've given up everything, are we going to get anything back? Once again, Jesus says, and he's implying this is at the final time in heaven, at the final reward, if you've given up anything for my sake, you will receive a hundredfold back and eternal life. I just received a certificate, actually from the bank that you can, some of you can see across the street. I have a savings certificate there, and it's a one-year certificate. It's due for renewal, and they said, you know, if you don't come in by April 23rd, we'll just automatically renew your money market savings account that you have. So my wheels started spinning. Well, do I just want to renew that, or can I do better someplace else than the 0.2 percent? You know, the interest from last year wouldn't even buy dinner for my wife and I. How ridiculous. Well, I thought to myself, 
might as well just roll it over because nobody else is going to do any better. Jesus isn't talking about 0.2% return. A hundred times, a hundred times, whatever you gave up will be received. Again, is he meant to be understood that this is an absolute literal thing? Or is he saying the return that you will get for whatever you give, whatever you sacrifice for my name is so abundant, so great, that it's just about beyond real counting and calculating. We look to what he said a little further in Matthew 25 at a bit later occasion, again telling a parable, the parable of the talents. And he was talking about a master rewarding his servant who had invested while he was away. And the master said to this servant, you know these words probably, Matthew 25, 21. The master said to the servant, well done. Good. Faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter now into the joy of your salvation. Enter into the joy of it. Wow. Just to hear that is plenty. A 19th century theologian named J.C. Ryle said, No man can ever follow Christ and be a true loser for anything he has given in the end for his master. A 20th century missionary, Jim Elliott, many of you have heard this saying before, Jim Elliott, who gave his life in Ecuador in the jungle as a missionary when Alka Indians speared him and his companions to death, had written when he was still a college student, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I don't know if any of you as teachers or children's workers or youth workers or VBS workers are ever sitting down and and calculating and saying, what's the return? Here I am sacrificing time in the summer when I could be at the pool or doing anything else, going to meetings for vacation Bible school and trying to keep rambunctious kids under control. Here I am, Sunday after Sunday, having to prepare a lesson and be there on time, and I can't, I can barely ever miss church because I've got to teach. I, I admit, sometimes I'm ragging my wife a little bit, who has taught four-year-olds for I don't even know how many years in our Sunday school. I know there are people who have taught longer, by the way, than she, but I think it's about ten years that she's taught the four-year-old class. Her four-year-olds are starting to go to high school now and even getting near graduating, some of them. And, and I've, I've said different remarks to her sometimes. Carol, you know, when are you going to think? And of course, you don't want to imply to your wife that she's getting old. But uh, you say, well, you know, when, when are you going to be a little too old to handle four-year-olds? And it's just clear that she's doing it because she loves it. And she comes home and tells me all the cute things that her, she just told me today. Some of the things that her, her students said and their parents said. And she, the joy of the Lord fills the task. That's why she's doing it. She's not sitting there saying, oh, my goodness, if I wasn't teaching those miserable four-year-olds, just think of all the joy I could have and the weekends that would be free. I wouldn't have to prepare a lesson. Jesus says the rewards are real. They're not only real, they're great. 
They're beyond calculation. But don't sit around today, you know, looking at those rewards like maybe a Boy Scout does with his merit badges. Some of you probably have been scouts or had scouts in your family. I was a Cub Scout. I never got into the Boy Scout ranks. But I knew I had friends and relatives and have had scouts in our church, this church and others who have attained Eagle Scout. And I've seen them in their uniforms, you know, with a sash. And you get those nice round merit badges that you have your mom sew on, all nice in rows. And maybe you get three dozen merit badges and it goes right over your shoulder and down the back. And you look at that and say, wow, every one of those badges took time and and effort to earn and pass requirements. That's great. Look at what that scout did. Well, there are not merit badges in the kingdom of God. And it's a good thing, folks. In fact, it would be very damaging to our spiritual pride if God gave us a system and said, Now, you know, you've served this church 40 years. You've got four rows of merit badges going up your sash so that you can be proud more than some other Christian who hasn't done as much than you. Jesus knew that would be bad for us. And that's why I think he left the rewards vague, in a manner of speaking, deliberately vague. They will be great. They will be real. They will be tremendous. But it's better that I not spell them out so that you think there's a merit badge system because that would be trouble. Now, quickly, just a couple concluding comments here. You know, if a Sunday school teacher, a youth worker, somebody received nothing for serving Christ, for serving young people, the Scripture says we would have only done what we ought to have done. If there was, quote, no Reward. How do we, after all, repay a God who has poured his grace out on us? Grace can't be paid for. You know that hymn that we sang at the end, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be a present far too small for love so amazing, so divine, which demands my soul, my life, my all. And then you haven't begun to pay for it. You don't pay for God's grace. Another saying of Jesus is in Luke 17, a little tiny parable, one of his almost unnoticed parables about servants who went out and worked. And then Jesus said, well, if you have a servant and at the end of the day he comes in, uh, does he come in from the field and does he recline at the table and expect the master to serve him? Of course not. After he works in the field, he comes in, he fixes the master's dinner. That's what servants do, is the point of the parable. And Jesus says, so you, when you have done all you're commanded to do, you will say, we are but unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. There isn't one of you who volunteers as much as we praise and thank you for what you do. Who can say, well, I've been the most extraordinary volunteer. I've gone way beyond what's expected. No, you've only done your duty as a recipient of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Consider, folks, what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with eternal souls. Eternal souls. Now, you know, it's a great thing to teach children. It's a great thing to be a doctor or a nurse and to bring healing to the bodies of children. It's a wonderful thing to be a school teacher and minister to their minds and nurture them to become mathematicians or physicians or lawyers or whatever. But none of that is greater than what a Sunday school teacher does. 
or what a VBS worker or a youth worker does. Think what it means to be used of God as his instrument to influence an eternal soul to trust Christ. Think about that. There isn't anything you do in your whole life that's greater than that. Anything that could possibly be greater than being used as an instrument to influence a soul for eternity. It may be that a few of you who are older here would know a name if I say it. Don't call it out. But uh, probably most of you who are younger do not. But, you know, there was a preacher down in the South many years ago. Oh, I don't know how long. Probably 70 years ago now, I suppose. He was a backwoods, hick kind of a guy, uneducated. But he felt that God called him to preach and he became an evangelist and he got a tent and he would go around little tiny towns. He was never famous. He went around little towns in the south and held camp meetings, evangelistic meetings. His name was Mordecai Ham. A few of you are nodding because you've heard of Mordecai Ham. You say, who in the world was Mordecai Ham? Well, Reverend Mordecai Ham was the backwoods country preacher in whose tent meeting one day a young North Carolina farm boy named Billy Graham gave his heart to Jesus Christ. Is that amazing? Is Mordecai Ham great in the kingdom of heaven? Is Mordecai Ham going to receive from his Savior a hundredfold? Whatever he sacrificed by being a poor backwoods preacher, not just because a famous preacher came to the Lord through him, but because many, many others did as well. Is God going to remember the name of a Sunday school teacher who helped this preacher come to Jesus Christ? I'm not famous. I'm not that significant. But the young woman who was then a young woman now today is well up in her 80s, I believe still living, who led me to Christ, is great in the kingdom of heaven. Thank you, Sunday school teachers. Thank you, club leaders. Thank you, VBS workers. Thank you, youth leaders. The smallest part you've had, whether you poured the Kool-Aid in the kitchen or taught the Bible lesson, you're dealing with eternal souls. What's your reward? I'm going to leave it to you this way. Something from Jonathan Edwards. Edwards was talking about the differences of rewards that Christians would receive. And, and he gave it a good image that you can hold in your mind. He said, picture it as if each of us who influences others with the gospel is like a bucket or a big jar. Now, we're all different sizes. Somebody's a, a 10-gallon bucket. Somebody else is a five-gallon bucket. Somebody's a one-gallon bucket. Somebody's a one-quart jar. Somebody's a little pint bottle or a little glass. But he said, in eternity, every believer in Jesus Christ is going to come and be filled to the fullness of their capacity with Christ. They're going to be filled with Christ until if they had one more drop, they would overflow. Now, if you're filled with Christ, does it really matter whether you're a one-pint container 
or a 10-gallon container? That's what the differences are going to be in the kingdom of heaven. All God's servants redeemed by Christ, filled with him, filled to overflowing. And I pray you will be one from whose spillover others, too, will have come to be filled with our glorious Savior. I'm going to lead us in prayer for our teachers, a prayer of thanksgiving and commitment for those who who we're giving thanks for and honoring tonight. Father, we thank you for the privilege of, of being a church where we are desirous of leading our young people and our children, shaping them, letting the gospel shape them. Make us, Lord, to be pens that write the message from you. And what honor should be accorded to a pen? The honor goes to you who wrote the gospel. You who sent your son. You who brought him to the cross in love and obedience. And you who gave your law on Mount Sinai. You who brought him forth from the tomb and raised him to be ascended to your right hand. You who rule now. You who elect your people from all eternity. We're only your instruments. Only your servants. But what a privilege it is to do that. I pray, Lord, for each one who gives precious time from their schedule and commits to this holy work. Will you continue to give them energy and and strength and, yes, joy as they do this work? And may your name be glorified as boys and girls become moms and dads themselves and the next generation and the next generation and the next sing the praises of Christ. How thankful we are for a privilege to be part of this. Help us, Lord, to do it to the utmost of our ability. For Jesus' sake, amen.